Well, our sermon text this morning is Mark chapter 15, verses 1 through 15. So if you have a Bible, if you want to turn there and follow along, and uh, I'll ask you to stand, if you're able to do so, for the reading of God's Word this morning. Mark chapter 15, verses 1 through 15, give ear to the reading of God's Holy Word. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. This ends a reading of God's word. You may be seated. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray and ask his blessing upon his word to us today. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We ask that you would... Uh, work in us by your spirit. We know that we can't, I uh, can neither preach the word without your spirit's work uh, effectively, nor can we understand and hear it uh, rightly without your spirit's teaching and guiding. And so we ask that you would work in us by your Holy Spirit, fill us with your spirit and give us by him eyes to see and ears to hear great things from your word. Build us up on our most holy faith and convert the lost for it's in Christ's name we pray all these things. Amen. Well, Mark, if you've uh, been following along, you know Mark is the shortest gospel. Uh, Mark's favorite word seems to be immediately. If you read through the gospel of Mark, it's only 16 chapters long. It's rather brief. Uh, and I think it's over 40 times you'll find the word immediately. Mark is always trying to move things along and get uh, to the point. And so it shouldn't be a much of a surprise to us as we get to Mark 15 that Mark doesn't really waste any time in hastening us on to the account of the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus Christ, which really starts to happen right after this passage that we're looking at this morning. Um, in the previous chapter, the previous passages in Mark 14, uh, we, we saw Jesus was on trial before the Sanhedrin. That's the Jewish high council or Jewish supreme court, however you want to think about that. And so here in our text, we find him a second time on trial for his life, this time not before the religious authority in Jerusalem, but before what we would think of as the secular court or the secular secular authority, and that is Pontius Pilate, the governor uh, there, the Roman governor who was ruling over uh, there in, in uh, Israel. Now, in a sense, if you think about it, it should be kind of remarkable that we know Pilate's name. Pilate's name is very well known, at least among, among Christians, uh, but it should be kind of remarkable to us that you know, he wasn't that important of a person. He wasn't the Roman emperor. He wasn't anybody of consequence. If, he, if it weren't for the fact that he was involved in Christ's crucifixion, practically no one would remember his name at all. 
He appears in a couple secular histories, but a rather minor uh, figure. Sinclair Ferguson writes this, that he was a man... Quote, a man whose history would have well nigh, would have been well nigh forgotten were it not for his part in this drama. And now, in a sense, you know, you think about it, he's famous or infamous for all the wrong reasons. He's, he's well known because he played a very crucial part in crucifying Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, if you read your New Testament, Pilate's name comes up again and again and again in the later chapters of all four Gospels. He shows up there quite a bit. In fact, Mark's account of Pilate, his interactions with Christ, is really about the shortest one. Other ones, uh, Jesus, there's much more give and take and talking back and forth between Christ and Pilate. Remember, Pilate asked Jesus in one of the other Gospels, what is truth, all these kinds of things. In ours, it's very, very abbreviated. It's a very short, short account. Um, he's, He's also named at least three times in the book of Acts. So Pilate, what he, what he did in, in his involvement in crucifying our Lord is brought into the, the chapters of the book of Acts. It's also mentioned by Paul in 1 Timothy 6.13. Uh, you might also know and remember that Pilate's name is included in the Apostles' Creed. You know, Once every other month we, we recite the Apostles' Creed together, and in that section of the Creed where it talks about the sufferings and death of Christ for our salvation, uh, we confess together as, a, as an essential part of the Christian faith, mind you, he suffered under Pontius Pilate. You know, if you and I were writing the Apostles' Creed, which is good that we're not, that we didn't, we would have said, you know, he died on the cross. But the actual history matters. The actual events, and even, you know, Pilate is not, was not a good man. We don't recite his name in the creed because he was a good man. But he was involved. He was the, the secular authority, the Roman authority that was in charge of and gave the final order for Christ to be Crucified, the Nicene Creed, the second oldest ecumenical creed that we all confess also, says that for us men and for our salvation, Jesus Christ what? Was, quote, was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. There's history and theology both mixed together. Crucified, history. Crucified for us. That's the gospel. That's theology. That's why he died. And, and how was that done? Under Pontius Pilate. So all that's to say, uh, as we confess those creeds and read these passages, that Christianity is a religion that involves necessarily actual history. History, facts and history and all these things matter uh, for the Christian faith. Redemptive history involves an actual history. It's not just a, uh, you know, with, without the, the events in the history of our redemption, there is no Christianity. Christianity is not just a moral philosophy. That's what many people think it is. Because most of the world's religions are just that. They're just a moral philosophy, a way of living your life, a way of seeing things and uh, doing things. It's also not just an inward spiritual exercise. Many think, because many of the world's religions, the false religions of this world, are just that. They're just a spiritual exercise. You know, a lot of people like to be, think, like to think of themselves as spiritual, quote unquote, people. Uh, but without the actual events that we read of in Scripture, especially the sufferings and death and resurrection and glory of Christ, we have no salvation. If Jesus did not suffer under Pontius Pilate and die on the cross for our sins, then there is no basis for the Christian faith at all. There is no good news, no hope of forgiveness or salvation for fallen sinners. That's why the Apostle Paul, when he, when he writes the letter of 1 Corinthians Almost uh, to the end of the book, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 to 4, he writes this. 
For I delivered to you as of what? First importance what I also received. In other words, he didn't get to make it up as he went. He didn't get to determine the content of his preaching and teaching. He what? He received it. All he, it's like a prophet. All he's doing is, thus saith the Lord, passing on what God had passed on and delivered to him. And what are those things that are of first importance that Paul delivered that he received? That Christ died for our sins, accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Those were the things that are of first importance. Doesn't mean the other things weren't important as well, but this is central. In the same book, in the, in the first chapter, 1 Corinthians one twenty three, Paul says, uh, for the content of his preaching, we preach Christ crucified. That doesn't mean that he just said those words over and over again, but the, the heart of his preaching, the, the, the center the, the bullseye of the target of his preaching was Christ crucified. Later in that uh, same book, 1 Corinthians 2, verse 2, he says of his ministry among the Corinthians, For I decided to know nothing among you except what? Jesus Christ and him crucified. To, to note he's hitting over and over throughout the book. All the different practical issues and sins and, and problems and questions that you find in the book of 1 Corinthians in some way, what does Paul do? He applies Christ's death and resurrection to all of them. Every, every The whole book, that's the thread, the, the scarlet thread, so to speak, that runs through the whole book and all the content of Paul's preaching and teaching ministry is Christ crucified. That's why, you know, for example, the Gospel of Mark. We're looking at Mark. We're almost to the end of the book. I can hardly believe that. But, you know, the Gospel of Mark, it's 16 chapters long. It's the shortest of the four Gospels, and yet Mark spends about a third of the entire Gospel on one week. And what week is that? The Passion Week of Christ, the week that Christ was, was he came into Jerusalem, the triumphal entry, the betrayal, the arrest, the trials, and the crucifixion and his resurrection. Six chapters out of 16 are about that one week. That's not an accident. The Gospel of John, in, 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 the, in the same way, the Gospel of John, 21 chapters, and just about half of the book is about that one week, chapters 12 through 21. The Gospels, just like Scripture, are primarily about Christ crucified for the salvation of sinners. You know, John, uh, towards the end of the Gospel of John, he says that, you know, he didn't include all, the, all of Christ, I'm paraphrasing, he didn't include all of Christ's miracles, but if he had, he says what? He says, I suppose that if I were to try to include all those, there would be no end of the books that could have been written. We did, your Bible would be quite long. You might think it's long now. It would have been, you'd never get to the end of it because Jesus did so many things. But the main thing is the main thing, and the main thing is his crucifixion for our sins and his resurrection. So the first thing from our text I'd like us to look at is the, the charges, the charges against Jesus. We find that in verses 1 through 5. Mark writes there, he says, and as soon as it was morning, so the crack of dawn after the Sanhedrin gets done with their trial, right? They don't waste any time. As soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council, that's the Sanhedrin, and they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, that's asked Christ, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things, and Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, 
so that Pilate was amazed. Just like the scripture reading this morning from Isaiah 53. He, he, uh, he opened not his mouth. He answered one thing and nothing else and basically remained silent most of the time. Now, now the Sanhedrin, the Jewish high court, they had unjustly, obviously, convicted Christ of blasphemy. Right? They convicted him of blasphemy, which to them was a, a crime worthy of capital punishment in their eyes. Uh, but that being the case, the charge of blasphemy to a Roman court meant little to, little or nothing. They couldn't bring Jesus to Pilate and say, this guy, you know, this Jesus committed blasphemy and here's what he said, here's how it's against the Torah, here's how, you know, here's why we think he should be put to death. Pilate wouldn't have even accepted that. Pilate would have no reason to put Jesus on the cross for a charge of blasphemy. So the Sanhedrin, what did they do? They conspired to, to accuse Jesus, charge him with something more political. There, the accusation they made against Christ wasn't religious so much as it was political. They charged him with sedition or rebellion against Rome. Now, how do I know that? Does it say that in so many words in the text? What well, kind of does? What does what does Pilate ask him? You know, when, think about it. They bring Jesus to Pilate. He's bound. Uh, they're handing him over. They're wanting him to be crucified as as a as a not just a common criminal, but as a capital uh, crime kind of criminal. And Pilate asks him, are you the king of the Jews? That's, that's the charge. Are you a king? Because we, we have a king around here, and it's not a Jewish king. It's, it's the emperor. Are you the king of the Jews? That's a secular way, so to speak, of saying that Jesus was the Messiah. What's the, what is, when you hear the word Messiah, what do you think of? It's a Jewish word that we... Christ is the, is the Greek New Testament word for Messiah. Messiah was the anointed one or the anointed king of Israel. The one that was to come, the one upon whom Israel had set their hope from, from the first announcement of the promise of the, of the Messiah was, was of, a, of a king, one in the line of David. David was, anoint, was the anointed of, of Israel, anointed of the Lord. Remember why, why David wouldn't stretch his hand forth to harm Saul? Because Saul was the anointed, the Lord's anointed. Well, that's, that's the Messiah. So, so even Saul, as bad as he was, was kind of a... A very faulty picture of the one that was to come, just like David was a, you know, a, a picture, an imperfect picture of the one that was to come. To say you're the Messiah, you know, it wasn't just, are you a king of the Jews? Are you the king of the Jews? The one that was supposed to come and set them free? Well, who would the king of the Jews, according to the people's wrong idea of it, what would the king of the Jews be doing for the people? Who, who would the king of the Jews be setting the Jews free from? The Romans, that's what they had hoped. They weren't correct in that regard. So that's, he's telling, he's implying what the charge is. Are you the king of the Jews? And what does Jesus do? Remarkably, truthfully, obviously, he says, you said so. You said it yourself. It, he answers the one, the one thing he says was the one thing guaranteed to convict him. When he says, basically says, yes, you know, you said it yourself. He's practically saying, uh, I'd like to, he's practically, like we think of courts these days, we say, what, you know, what's your, uh, what's your plea? I'd like to plead guilty, Your Honor. That's basically what Jesus is doing. Now, Jesus wasn't guilty, was he? But, but he was telling the truth. He is and was the king of the Jews, at that, uh, at just, as, just as Pilate had said. Now, in John 19.12, it says this about, about what, the, the, what a king might be thought to do. 
It says, from then on, Pilate sought to release him. That's Jesus. Pilate was trying to let him go, for a time at least. And it says, but the Jews cried out, if you release this man, they don't even say his name, this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. Whereas they're turning up the heat, they're saying, you know, if you let him go, word might get back to Caesar. That you let someone who claimed to be a king in, in rivalry with his own being an emperor, that you let that one go. Now again, notice that Jesus, the only thing he answers is that one thing. And to everything else, Jesus remained silent. All those accusations by the chief priests, he just stood there and said nothing. And Pilate couldn't believe it. Pilate, why aren't you saying something? Why aren't you defending yourself is what he's really asking. And Jesus remained silent, but he answered the one thing that would be sure to lead to his death when he admitted to being the king of the Jews. Now in verse 5, Mark says that Jesus' Jesus' silence in the face of all those accusations quote-unquote, amazed or astonished Pilate. Now, it's easy for us to look at that and say, well, why was he amazed? Well, he's amazed because normal people defend themselves. If you and I were there, and thank God we weren't, and being accused of a capital crime, even if you were guilty, you would answer the charge. You would try to find some way to get off of the charge. That's why they pay attorneys, isn't it? Even guilty people try to get attorneys. Most guilty people don't say, yep, you got me. They tried to find some way to get out of it. Well, Jesus just stood there, bound and quiet and silent, and, and took it. All the accusations piling up upon him by the chief priests, he just stood there and said nothing. You and I would speak in our own defense. Jesus didn't. He just sat there listening. So Pilate was also amazed. Why else? Because he knew Jesus was innocent. I mean, think about that. Here's Pilate, the one who gets the right of life or death, in a sense, because God had given it to him, as Christ says elsewhere. Christ had given him that authority, in a sense. But he has the authority to let him go or to kill him. And not just kill him, to have him crucified. And he knows Jesus is innocent. Now, why doesn't he just let him go? He's not an innocent victim in all this. Pilate is not some good guy caught caught in the crosshairs of history, you know, uh, he would have done the right thing. He didn't do the right thing, but he knew Jesus didn't do anything wrong. That's why he was so amazed. He's staring at a man and saying, I know he didn't do what they're saying he did, and he won't defend himself. Again, that's not what you would have expected. And how do we know he knew he was innocent? Well, he says in verse uh, 10, he perceived that it was out of what? Envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. He knew the charges weren't honest. He knew the motivation for the charges weren't honest. Not only that, but when the crowds later started to cry out, crucify him, in verse 13, what does Pilate ask him about that? In verse 14, why, what evil has he done? It's a rhetorical question. He hasn't done anything. Pilate knew he hadn't done anything. Twice in John's parallel account, Pilate himself states that he found no guilt in Jesus. John 19, verses 4 and six, He says it twice. The judge is saying, I don't see anything in this man to convict him of anything. And yet he still had him crucified. So think about that. All, despite all of that, Pilate condemns an innocent man to die. The only innocent man in the history of humanity, Pilate condemned to die, even the death of the cross. He had the king of the Jews, the Lord of glory, scourged, and crucified simply to satisfy a bloodthirsty crowd. Verse 15. 
So at the end of the day, what do you see? You know, a lot of times we think we've changed. You know, we think that, oh, we have all these, uh, you know, technological advancements and things. We have, you know, all the technology in the world on our, on our hip, on our smartphones, so-called. Uh, but Pilate's no different than politicians today, is he? At the end of the day, many of them, just like Pilate, they care more about self-interest and, and their politics than they do about justice. He could have done the right thing, but it would have displeased the crowd. And so what does he do? Well, he, he, likes, he likes his office. He likes the perks that come with it, and so he does what the crowd... It's kind of ironic. He's supposed to be the one ruling, isn't he? And yet, what, who's really in charge? It's kind of hard to tell. Is it the crowd? Is it the mob? Is it, is it Pilate? All the above in some, in some kind of, of way. Well, the next thing our text brings before us here is not just the charges against Christ, but the custom or the tradition of Pilate in verses 6 to 11. Uh, Mark, in, in verse 6, Mark says that Pilate had a, a custom or a tradition of sorts. In verse 6, it says, Now at the feast, that's the Passover, at the feast he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. So this isn't, you know, this isn't like a Roman thing where, you know, hey, thou shalt, whoever's the governor has to let somebody go. But Pilate thought it might be a good thing for his career, possibly, to every time at the Passover, every, once a year at the Passover, he would let them pick one prisoner to release. Not just to not be crucified, but it says release to them, to give back to the people. It's, you know, think about somebody having death row, you know, guys waiting to be executed uh, on death row, and you know, every year at Christmas the governor pardons someone. That's kind of what's going on here. He's saying, okay, you know, we'll let one of them, one of them go. Uh, so it wasn't, it wasn't just a stay of execution and he stayed in jail. It was, a, it was kind of a pardon. It was a, an act of clemency. The person would be released. Now, the, the scriptures don't say much about this tradition, uh, but I think the fact that he did this around Passover every year seems to suggest that he did it as some kind of a symbolic gesture. You know, it, it, he kind of had some idea what the Passover was about since he was uh, ruling over there in that time. And so, you know, think about it. What's Passover about? Passover happened with the 10th plague, the death of the firstborn in Egypt. But what's it, what was the main thing about? They would sacrifice a lamb, put the blood, the Israelites would put the blood on the doorpost and the lintel of the door. And when the angel of death would, would come, would come, he would pass over and not take the firstborn male child from that particular home. But more than that, what's it about? God stretching out with, you know, saving his people with an outstretched arm out of the house of slavery, out of Egypt, you know, freeing his people. That's, that, that's what it's all about. So in kind of a, a symbolic sense, Pilate's kind of, you can see how his mind might have been working. Okay, well, you know, every Passover, I'm going to kind of embody that by letting a guilty person go who is in bonds go free. And I'll let them pick it. They'll love me. You know, my, my reign here in Jerusalem will go well. And everybody will will be happy. But what does Mark tell us about the particular prisoner that was going to be released? In verse in verse seven, Mark writes, Among the, the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. You know, Mark could have just said the crowd asked for Barabbas. Mark wants us to know that Barabbas was no innocent man. He wants us to know what kind of man Barabbas, this man who the crowd was going to ask for, was that he was part of a, of a rebellion or insurrection, that he had committed murder. You know, I mean, this, this, was, this was a bad a bad man, someone who wanted to get rid of Rome, which maybe the Jews in that, ta- that, that time were, were you know, in favor of that, 
And so they thought, well, he's a bad guy, but he's our bad guy. We don't know what the motivation uh, was. But Mark wants us to know this man was guilty of sedition, insurrection, a, a violent attempt to overthrow Rome as the government. He had committed murder in the course of that crime, and so he was justly convicted of a capital crime. He deserved to die. He earned, so to speak, his, his sentence. And in verses 8 through 11, Mark says that that crowd in Jerusalem called upon Pilate to release one prisoner. In other words, they knew it was his tradition at this time was to release one, so they said, okay, it's Passover. Let's, let's ask him to release uh, one. In verses 8 to 11, it says, and the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. Now, again, we don't know what Pilate's custom was, but you know, you, you almost wonder, was his normal custom just to kind of show the people, whoever it was, and say, pick one? He doesn't do that here. What does he do? He singles out Jesus. And he even uses the title that, that they called him by. Do you want me to release for you, not Jesus, not by name, the king of the one you call the king of the Jews? Do you want me to release your king? The answer should have been a very quick yes. And yet it wasn't. And why was that? One, he knew it was out of envy of the chief priests that they put him forward, but what do the chief priests do? They do something very unpriestlike. You know what? We talked about this, I think, last week in Sunday school. What, what is it? What was the role of a priest? You know, a prophet, the prophets, what did they do? The prophets spoke, thus saith the Lord. They represented God to the people. But a priest, it's reversed. In a sense, the priest's job was to represent the people to God. The priest was supposed to be the one interceding for the people, making sacrifices for the people. But what do you have here? You have the chief priests stirring up the crowd, acting more like Satan, the accuser of the brethren himself, than what they were supposed to act like, which is a picture of Christ as our great high priest. It's, it's ironic. And, you know, they, they certainly unknowingly were offering up the Lamb of God for sacrifice, but it wasn't because they knew that that's what they were, were doing. So they, they, you know, they, he, the, the crowd asks him uh, to release for them Barabbas, even though Pilate tries to get them, at least at, at the start, to release, to pick Jesus instead. But the chief priests manipulate the crowd. They stir them up. And so the crowd asks for the, for the, you know, think about it. The crowd asks for the release of the one who was guilty of sedition and murder rather than Jesus, the Lord of glory and Prince of Peace, who had been falsely charged with sedition. They, they ask for the one who was guilty rather than the one who was innocent of really the same, the same charge of being in opposition to Rome. And you know, I think we can't help but think of, in some way, this is a picture of the gospel. This release of, of Barabbas in place of Jesus and Jesus taking his place. You know, we don't, we don't know. I wish I could say that we knew what happened to Barabbas. I wish we could say that, and maybe there's some, something written somewhere, but I don't know of it, that says Barabbas came to Christ and, and was saved and you know, served the Lord all of his life. I hope that's the case. We don't have any reason to say or know that. Uh, but his release is something that's kind of a picture of the gospel in many ways. For in the gospel of Christ, the guilty are set free by the atoning death of a sinless substitute. And that's really what we see a picture of here. Barabbas deserved death. He deserved, he did the crime and he was to do his, his sentence. He deserved to be executed. He was guilty of murder and yet he was set free. 
While Jesus, the sinless Lamb of God, who humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, died in his place. Died where he could have been released. You and I were all sinners, the Bible says. Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and what? Fall short of the glory of God. Everyone. Every one of us has sinned. And as such, Romans also says that the wages of sin, Romans 6, uh, 23, the, the wages of sin is death. What does that mean? What's a wage? A wage is something that we earn, that we deserve. We, we all deserve death and an eternity in hell. That's what our sins rightly deserve. But what does Paul say in the last part of Romans 6, 23? He says, for the wages of sin is death, but thank God he goes on. He says, but the free gift of God is eternal life. In Christ Jesus our Lord. It's a free gift. It's not what we deserve. The Lord Jesus died on the cross and satisfied the wrath of God in the place of sinners like you and me so that all who come to him through faith might not have death but might have eternal life instead. Are you still in your sins? Have you turned to Christ by faith for salvation and eternal life? That's what this text, I believe, is it, all of Scripture really is telling us to do. Well, the, the last thing our text points out, and it's kind of hard to, to think about, is the cry of the crowd. The cry of the crowd is obviously what? Two words. It says it twice in our text. Crucify him. Crucify Christ. In verses 12 to 15, Mark says this, And Pilate again said to them, you know, it's ironic, Pilate's the judge, Pilate's, in a, in a sense, kind of mildly acting as if he's the attorney for the accused. He, what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, implying that they had already been saying this. Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, why, what evil has he done? But they shouted all the more. So it's like the crowd's getting louder and louder and louder. They're demanding one thing, and that thing is to have Jesus crucified. Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. You know, it's it's a good thing for us in some ways that, that uh, not just Mark, but all four gospel writers, they really don't spend, uh, they really don't spend much time or words trying to paint the picture of what happened. You know, some of these movies that have been coming out over the last, I don't know, 10 years or so, it's almost like they think that the power is in the depiction of the gore. You know, the passion of the Christ, I haven't watched it, but I've seen little snapshots of it. I've heard people describing it. Uh, and it's very brutal, and it's probably very accurate. And people say that things like that, those movies, are the greatest evangelistic tool in the history of mankind, that if only Apostle Paul had a VCR or a, a TV or, or a screen to show a movie on, then people would come to know the Lord. Well, the Bible doesn't do that. The Bible doesn't doesn't major on that. The Bible doesn't doesn't spend time trying to get us to think about how awful, you know, in, in, in graphic detail these things might have been. But when it says that he scourged Jesus, that was a beating that in, in many cases killed the prisoner before they even got to the cross. It wasn't a light beating. It was a bloody thing to have done. And so he had him scourged and delivered him over to be crucified. So the, the Bible focuses on, on why he died and the fact that he died, not for us to spend our time trying to imagine the, the, the graphic nature of it. Now, the crowd repeatedly chose Barabbas over Christ. They repeatedly 
not just said it, they cried out. I mean, they're shouting, basically, crucify him. And they know what they're asking for when they say it. I know it's hard for us to picture it, and you probably don't want to picture it. But what kind of agonizing, public, humiliating death this was, and that's what they wanted to have happen to Christ. And so the crowd chose him, and and Pilate handed him over to be crucified. And so in a sense, really both Jews and Gentiles played a part in the death of Christ. And he is the, the savior of sinners that are both Jew and Gentile. So it's fitting that everyone, in a sense, played a part in his death on the cross. Now, no greater miscarriage of justice can be imagined from a human perspective. I mean, literally, the only innocent man that ever walked this earth didn't just die. He didn't just get mugged by the side of the road. He was crucified and publicly humiliated and died. Uh, an imagine, hard to imagine the, the pain of that kind of a death. But from a divine perspective... This was all to fulfill the will of God for the salvation of sinners. Human perspective, it was sin. God's perspective, it was the love of God for his people. That's as high as the heavens are above the earth. The Apostle Peter, in his uh, sermon on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2, verses 22 to 24, he tells the people in Israel this in Jerusalem, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God, with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. So there you have the same idea. Why did Jesus die on the cross? He was delivered up. Why? According to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And then it says, this uh, you crucified and killed him by the hands of lawless men. Who's the you? The people in, in Jerusalem. Who are the lawless men? Well, I think what he's talking about, Pilate and the Roman, the Roman soldiers that did what they did to Jesus Christ. It was God's plan, but it was still their sin. And yet it was the way that God accomplished the salvation of his people. Now this was also a fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah that we read earlier in our service in Isaiah 53, verses 7 to 8, when it says, He was oppressed... And he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Uh, like a lamb that's led to the slaughter, like a sheep that is that before its shearers is silent, he opened, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? Did the people yelling, crucify, crucify him, crucify him, did they understand or consider that he was cut off out of the land of the living because he was stricken for the transgression of his people? No. They didn't know what they were saying. They didn't understand what was really happening. It's fulfilling this prophecy. He was he was silent, opened not his mouth, so the pilot was amazed. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. <clears throat> oppression and judgment. When Isaiah says, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away and cut off out of the land of the living, what's he saying? He's saying his death, Christ's death, had to be a judgment. Jesus getting mugged at the side of the road wasn't going to save sinners. It had to be an act of judgment. The act of judgment on this human court, however, unjust, unjust on the part of Pilate, was, was necessary for him to pay the price for our sins. And why did all this happen to Jesus Christ, the innocent, sinless Son of God, why? Verse 8 of, of Isaiah 53 says why. He was stricken, 
Why? For the transgression of my people. He died, was crucified for our transgressions, not for his own. We're going to close our service in a little bit with the hymn uh, known as Man of Sorrows, What a Name by Philip Bliss. And it puts it, three of the verses put it this way. It says, Man of Sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came. Ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood. Sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a Savior. In my place condemned he stood. Guilty, vile, and helpless, we, spotless Lamb of God, was he. Full atonement can it be. Hallelujah, what a Savior. In my place condemned he stood. Sealed my pardon with his blood. Can you say that this morning? We're going to sing it. Can you say that as your confession? That in your place condemned he stood. And that he sealed your pardon. Guaranteed your forgiveness with his blood. Um, can you sing that from the heart today as your testimony? If you're, in, if you're in Christ by faith, you can. Those words of that hymn uh, or your confession of faith. No wonder that hymn says so many times, Hallelujah, what a Savior. Let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you praise and thanks that you loved us who are wicked, sinless, or sinful rebels against you, that uh, children that are worthy of perdition and who earn nothing but condemnation and hell by our sins. You loved us. You set your love upon us by your grace and sent your son to die in our place. And in our place condemned, he stood. We can't comprehend that. We have a hard time imagining that, but we thank you and praise you for it. And we ask that you would give us understanding into these things that we might uh, just be filled with wonder and praise at your glorious grace uh, in our salvation in Christ. We do ask that you would help us to, to confess and believe and even sing these things from the heart and be filled with the joy and peace and comfort that that brings. And we do ask, as always, that if anybody here yet does not know you and does not know the joy of having their sins forgiven and having their pardon sealed by the blood of Christ, that you might open their eyes even today, give them grace to see their sins for what they are, to see their sins and their guilt before you, and they might look to Christ and have life in his name and forgiveness and eternal life with you forever and all those things that we have only in Christ, your Son, our Savior. For we ask all these things in his name. Amen.